Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, gosh, if that noise goes off, I will not be able to handle it. But that is what happens when you rent a space. Like, we have no control over this uh, environment. But anyway, we'll handle it. We'll get through it. Pray to God. Anyway, so (laughs) if it is your first time here, let me catch you up to speed. I know we have some new folks here. Let me catch you up to speed where we've been, where we're going, what we're doing today. So false memory is a scientific term. Uh, It's a psychological phenomenon whereby humans remember things that didn't actually happen. And we've all fallen victim to this. How many times, as I always said every week, you're telling a story, details are crystal clear, somebody stops you and goes, the heck are you talking about? That didn't happen. But you remember it clear as day. This begins to play an issue in court proceedings uh, and with unreliable witness testimony, all this kind of stuff. But one area where false memory rears its ugly head many times is in the, uh, the arena of Scripture, if you will, how we remember Scripture, how we begin to apply Scripture, because as Christians, a lot of us have memorized Scripture, either by hearing it so many times, you just start to remember it, or if you grew up in a church and you were in Sunday school or whatever your church called it, you were taught to memorize Scripture, things like John 3.16. But outside of those sort of superstar verses, our memories get a little cloudy, And I don't know if it's because of this series, but I've been paying closer attention to the way that folks talk about Scripture. And sure enough, in church circles, a lot of times we're talking about Scripture and you go, yeah, it kind of says something like this. And and we're just, we paraphrase more than we have it memorized. And that's not a problem as long as you get it right. (laughs) But more times than not, we don't. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at verses and concepts and ideas and sayings that we firmly remember reading in the Bible. Now, we firmly remember someone saying, hey, the Bible says, or we firmly remember uh, a pastor preaching a message on, but when you open up God's Word, you don't find it in there. Or what you do find is something different than what you've been quoting for all of these years. So today, as we wrap up this series, I have saved, I don't want to say it's the best for last, but it's, it's definitely the most popular one. And I wanted to keep this to the end because this phrase that we're going to be looking at today is a phrase that is universally quoted by Christians and non-Christians, by people inside of the church and outside of the church, by people in America, internationally. We've, we've been saying it for probably since it was written, we've been, we've been saying this phrase. And the interesting thing about this phrase that we're going to reveal to you in a second is that whether you're a Christian or you're not, when you say this phrase, many of us, many of them attribute it to the Bible, attribute it to Christianity. So this phrase for the day is this, money is the root of all evil. I think we've all heard this, money is the root of all evil. Now here's an interesting thing. There is this idea that Christianity, let me put it this way, that true Christianity in its earliest forms, in its purest sense, sort of eschews wealth, possessions, pushes back against wealth and possessions. And, and, and we would say, well, it's not, not the Catholic church of today. We're not talking about sort of the mega evangelical churches of today with their multi-million dollar budgets. But, but true Christianity, if you will, the early church, the way that Jesus had intended it, it pushes back against money and, and wealth. And there's an, something perpetuates this. When we see priests and we see monks and we see nuns take vows of poverty, and what that tells us is that, that, that being rich is bad and being poor is honorable. 
That actually having nothing is a virtue that only the holiest attain. And with this worldview, because I actually think many of us, whether you realize it or not, many of us have this worldview that Christianity really pushes back against money, pushes back against wealth and stuff and possessions. When we have this, okay, and we begin to read the Bible, certain pieces of Scripture pop out seemingly promoting this exact idea. Jesus, in his most famous sermon ever given, Sermon on the Mount, launches, the very first line he says in his famous sermon, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we've been taught, or we understand when we read this, that, that Jesus is saying that if you are poor, if you are the underdog in society, you are blessed. You are sort of the underdog, the, the, the one that's at the, the bottom rungs of the ladder. You are the one who is going to inherit the kingdom of God, which necessarily means if you're rich, you're not blessed. That if you have a lot, you are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But here's the problem. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not talking about material possessions. What Jesus is talking about here is spiritual poverty, poor in spirit. And it's this idea that those of us who come to the realization that we are nothing without God, that we have nothing, we are nothing, those individuals are blessed. Those individuals are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says something else. Jesus says this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty damning evidence. That's not something you want to read if you're a rich person. And so what's happened over the last couple hundred years, theologians begin to kind of mitigate, let's call it, the damage of what Jesus just said here. And they go, well, just so you know, I understand what Jesus said, but just so you know, this eye of a needle thing that he's talking about here, that's actually a gate in Jerusalem. There's a gate that one has to enter to get into Jerusalem. It's called the eye of the needle. And camels can actually get through the eye of the needle. They have to bend down and they have to remove their packs, but, but they can get through it. And the point of this is, no, no, it may seem like Jesus is saying rich people can't get into heaven, but they can. They just have to, there's a problem. Number one, by this very analogy, if you will, they still need to take their pack off to get in. If you want to get through this gate, rich people still need to get rid of their stuff. There's another problem. Archaeologists have never found this gate, nor do they find any sort of artifact or written thing sort of pointing the direction that this thing ever even existed, and there's one more problem. Luke, who wrote this, was a medical doctor, and he chose a specific word for a surgical needle when he wrote this. That's an issue. And so we have created this theology that money is the root of all evil. We have supported it by cherry-picking some verses or misunderstanding some things that Scripture is actually trying to say. And what I want us to know as we wrap up this series, that this phrase, money is the root of all evil, is false. It's not in there. In fact, when you read the Bible cover to cover, Old Testament and New Testament, what you do see is example after example of sometimes extremely wealthy people, kings sometimes. As the scripture de describes one man, the wealthiest in the land, you see examples of very, very wealthy people who love God, 
with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God, according to the scripture, loves them. The reason this is so tricky for us, this, this money is the root of all evil, is because it is so similar to what the Bible actually says. Let me show you what the Bible actually says. Paul, writing to a young pastor named Timothy, wrote this. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, that difference is very subtle. But the ramifications are huge and wildly different. And what you have here is a verse in a context of a passage that we're going to get to in a second that, that talks about an issue that money enables. Interestingly enough, this word money in the original Greek is this word mammon. You know, it's a weird word. But that means stuff, just stuff in general. And so with Thanksgiving having just passed and Black Friday in the rear view mirror, Cyber Monday's tomorrow, you know, put down your reminders, okay? And Christmas coming down the line. It is perhaps more important than ever for us to drill down on exactly what this phrase is talking about. Because this phrase speaks right into the heart of an issue that every single one of us, at some level, struggles with. That issue is discontentment. A good working definition of discontentment just for us today is a, a dissatisfaction that I have for what I have. A dissatisfaction that you have for, for, for what you have. And yesterday, I don't know if you have Amazon Prime, but yesterday they released a documentary called Generation Wealth. I can't recommend it to you because it, there are some wildly inappropriate scenes, but you can watch it. Um, <clears throat> just, just a disclaimer, I am not recommending it. But it's very interesting because it is a documentary that is looking at wealth in America, materialism in America, and the pursuit of more. And, and the documentarian, or whatever you describe the person as, she says something interesting. She goes, in the 1940s and the 1950s, people that would be sort of our grandparents, your parents, depending on what age you are, that generation, it was different because we've gone from a world of hard work, discretion, and savings to now a world of fame and fortune where every single person, no matter where you are and what you've got, that just seems to be the goal that we are looking after. And this is a huge problem in America. And a major, a major fuel source for our discontentment is this word called awareness. And awareness is simply this idea that you were happy with what you had until you saw another version. You were happy with the thing that you owned until you saw the newer and the upgraded version. You were happy with your house until you went to your neighbor's house. You didn't realize you needed crown molding until you saw your neighbor's living room. You go, oh my gosh, how did, I, how did I live all these years without crown molding? It's beautiful, okay? You, you, like, you didn't know that you lived in a trash can until you saw Joanna Gaines put shiplap on every square inch of a house. You go, gosh, how have I been living all these years in this dump that I've been calling my house? You didn't realize your TV was not big enough until you went to your buddy's house to watch the big game, whatever game that is, okay? They always know. And, and you said, oh my God, I, I need this 85-inch television. Yes, I'm sitting 11 feet from it, but I need to just be like this at all times. Companies know this. Okay? They know this, all right? And we fall right into the trap. Take Apple, okay? Just Apple. Not picking on Apple, but let's pick on Apple. I am convinced that Apple has been making the same phone for the last six years. And probably so, and, and like, you know, you, every September, 
We wait with drool coming out. What's it going to be? And it's like, oh, don't I already own that phone? And they go, no, 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 no. No, you own this phone. This one, the camera on this one is so much better. What are we, Nat Geo photographers? I mean, right? We're taking pictures of our dog and screenshotting conversations so we can get into an argument about them later on. But what do we do? Okay, here's my money. Take it. You told me I need it. I need it. Here's why we do this. Our desire for newer and better is an appetite. Okay? And appetites are never fully satisfied. Take Thanksgiving, okay? I can't speak for you, but I ate so much that I was disgusted with myself. Had to take my pants off, put sweatpants on. There's an image for you, okay? (laughs) 25 minutes later, what did I say? You know what? I could use something sweet. Gross. You know you don't, right? But when we feel these appetites, we just think that in order to get rid of the appetite, we got to feed it. And what happens? When you feed an appetite... It only grows. It's, it only grows. You think, you think sex, you think money, you think power. When you give in to those appetites, what happens? You just want more of it. Our logic is you feed an appetite if you want it to go away, but the reverse happens. And what Scripture says is actually, you know what? When it comes to the appetites in your life, you need to do the opposite of your instincts. You need to starve them. So before we get to the Scripture of today, I want to put one more thing on your radar so you can begin to look through this filter as we see what Paul says. Because discontentment can be leveraged for good. Let me explain. We usually think about discontentment as being a negative thing. That's how I've painted it so far. Discontentment is what caused you to buy the thing you didn't really need, caused you to lease that thing you you didn't really need. But we can leverage our discontentment for good. For example, think about the civil rights movement for a moment. At its core, what you have there is a group of people who became discontent with the racism in this country, and they did something about it. And because of what they did back then, we live in a different world today. Is it perfect? Far from. But my gosh, how far we have come as a nation because a group of people felt discontent and leveraged that for good. In this own church, we got a guy named Scott Sonnenberg who had this discontent for the plight of the homeless in this city. He thought they weren't being taken care of. So what did he do? He prayed about it, and he felt led to start a ministry where he goes out there into the streets. He makes friends with these people, and he brings them clothing, and it's, it's just beautiful. In fact, the city of Fort Lauderdale got wind that he was doing this, brought him on board. He now goes to these court systems that we have now where, where when homeless people get arrested, they go to this particular court, And they get them the help that they need, the medical care and the job care. And Scott Sonnenberg helps facilitate that entire thing. It's amazing. Downtown Harbor Church, this church was started because a group of people five years ago became discontent with the fact that there was no church in this city that specifically set out to reach folks who had a bad experience with church or no experience with church. Every one of us at some level has been involved with this kind of mentality. Maybe your marriage wasn't as great as you thought it could be, and you went and got help. Maybe your health wasn't as good as you thought it could be, and you went and you saw a doctor, or you lost weight, or you started going to the gym. My hope for today, after we we read what Paul said, is that we would become discontent with our discontent for our stuff and channel that in doing something good for the world around us. So 2,000 years ago, A guy named Paul was writing to a young pastor named Timothy who was dealing with some folks in his church and in his community that were struggling a lot with discontentment. 
And Paul started the conversation by saying this. Yet, Timothy, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Right off the bat, he switches and flips the script on what great wealth is. Because for us, as Americans, we think of great wealth as a designer handbag, fancy new watch, luxury car, new boat, fat stock portfolio. But Paul's like, mm, not so fast. Great wealth is actually true godliness. And godliness, the best way that we can think about it, is being who God wants you to be and doing what God wants you to do. He goes, when you do that, coupled with contentment, which is, I'm fine with what I have. I'm happy for you, but, but I'm good. When you do those two things combined, you have great wealth. And then he says something interesting. He goes, after all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave. So he's saying, life has to be more than just having more. It's got to be. I mean, it's like if great wealth is simply amassing more, the acquisition of more, and, and you can't take it with you when you die, what do you have? You got nothing. My grandfather, who was a pastor, he used to say, John, I've never seen a funeral procession with a Brinks truck in it. You can't take it with you. So Paul's like, great wealth has to be something other than that. The most valuable thing that you have on this earth and in the earth to come is your relationship with God. And then Paul rocks our world. Look what he says. So, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. I'm sorry, Paul, what was that? Do you, do you really... Are you, you really mean, because you've got a lot of wisdom about do you really mean that we as Christians should be content with the clothes on our back, the food in our bellies, and, and just have a roof overhead? Is that, what you're, is that what you're trying to say? Here's my opinion. It's just my opinion. What I know about Paul is that he's a Pharisee, which means he was a Jewish religious leader. He knew the Bible inside and out. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. And what I believe he's doing in this moment is he is being influenced by something that King Solomon once said you got to see this with your own eyes. I think Solomon said this. It's from the Old Testament. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. When I read what Solomon wrote here, when I read what Paul wrote here, here's what I actually think they're saying. You need to find a happy medium. When it comes to your money, when it comes to your stuff, when it comes to your possessions, you need to find a happy medium because here's the problem. We as Americans, we've been led to believe that more is better. You need a faster car, you need a bigger boat, you need more clothes, but let's be honest real quick. How good does it feel when you do a spring cleaning? When you go into your closet and you just give away a quarter of your wardrobe. It's like, ah, oh, man, I can breathe in here. What does that tell you? It tells you that less is more. And if you've ever felt this way, I know I have. I think we let this feeling go by too quickly. 
I think we need to hold on to that feeling. I think we need to meditate on that feeling and marinate in that feeling because I believe that is your spirit and perhaps even the Holy Spirit saying, you don't need what you thought you needed. In fact, Netflix launched an entire series based on this idea. It's called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. This is really good. This will make you feel good about your stuff. What she does is she comes into your house and she goes into your bedroom, she goes into your closet, she goes into your kitchen, she goes wherever you got your stuff, wherever the problem area is. And she makes you pick up your possessions. Let's just say a sweater. And she asks one question. Does it spark joy? And if it does, you keep it. And if it doesn't, you give it away. And the amazing thing about this show, and the amazing thing if you begin to ask this question in your own life, you will be shocked at how much stuff that you have, that you thought you needed, that you told yourself, I have to get this, that doesn't spark joy at all. Paul continues. He says, but people who long to be rich, now this long to be rich, this is a, a phrase that means something along the lines of live richly. People who want more, people who want better, and let's be honest, that's all of us. Come on, that's all of us. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, but people who are rich. It says people that long to be rich, people that want to drive rich, wear rich, eat rich, live rich, vacation rich. That's America. That's America. That's all of us. He goes, people who long to be rich fall, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Notice it doesn't say it might happen. He says it will happen. They will fall into temptation. So when I read this warning from Paul, there was one question that was on my mind. Well, what's the trap? What's the trap? Welcome to church. Here comes the guilt. You ready? You knew it was coming. Here it is. If you have a credit card with a balance that you cannot pay off, you fell into the trap. If you have a mortgage that you cannot pay, not because you lost your job, but because you just got too much house, you fell into the trap. If you went into a car dealership to lease a car, the model that you wanted, and all of a sudden you saw that, hey, just for 100 bucks more a month, you can get the upgraded model with the wheels that nobody can tell the difference on, and now that you have this car, this payment is just a burden. It's making everything else in your life much harder. You fell into the trap. And we hear stories all the time in this country of hugely wealthy people, just, just business magnets who have to declare bankruptcy. It's, it's stunning. Kanye West, who has made a splash in the Christian community in the last couple of weeks, he said this three weeks ago. He said, last year, this is his quote. Last year, I made $115 million and still ended up with $35 million in debt. And we look at this and we say, how is that even possible? I mean, first of all, I mean, as a church, I don't think any of us could make 100, well, I don't know how much money you make, but I mean, I, yeah, that's a lot of money. $115 million, and like he's still in debt? How does that happen, we ask? Paul would say, oh, it's very simple. If your orientation in life is towards more, eventually you'll fall into the trap. 
And it doesn't matter if you're worth $500 million or if you are flat broke. If you have an appetite for more, you will plunge into ruin. Which brings us to the verse of the day. Paul famously says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, no one is going to admit to themselves or publicly that they love money. I mean, unless you're Gordon Gecko, who says greed is good, you're not going to say this. Okay, but let me, let me approach from a different angle. If you're married in the room, let me just talk to you for a moment. One of, one of you in this couple is going to get in trouble after I'm done with this, okay? Remember when you first met? Remember when you were dating and you were crazy in love and you would do all kinds of dumb stuff for that person that you love. Like I saw this week in researching this, I saw somebody drove, a guy, drove 10 hours to kiss his girlfriend goodnight. Puke, okay? <laughs> it's gross. Like, I hate people like that, okay? Judge them, okay? But something we may have done because we're perhaps more normal, how many of you would stay up all night long talking to your girlfriend or your boyfriend all night? Because, because you just had to hear their voice and you were exhausted for work, you were exhausted for school, but you couldn't put the phone down because, oh, I just thought, you say goodnight. No, you say goodnight. No, you say goodnight first. Okay, why don't we sleep with the FaceTime open? Okay, every single one of us at some point has done something dumb for someone we love. And here's the question I'll ask. Has your desire for something ever caused you to do something dumb? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're doing all kinds of financial and, and mathematical gymnastics just to sort of justify you getting that bigger house, getting that more expensive car, getting that boat? How many of you, don't raise your hands, how many of you have ever crossed the line ethically, legally, to get that thing that you wanted? If the answer is yes to these questions, I'm afraid to tell you that you, you might love money. He continues. And some people, craving money, have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is devastating. What Paul is saying here is that there are some people that are so sold out to money, so sold out to possessions, that it has caused them to wander from the true faith. That's God which means they've wandered to something, the false faith, the false God, money. And Jesus speaks directly into the seriousness of this issue, and I just want to jump and show you that real quick before we come back. Jesus says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And you read this, and if you're like me and you hear him say, you can't serve both God and money, you expect him to say, you can't serve both God and Satan. You can't serve both good and evil. You can't serve both light and darkness. But the Messiah of this universe, the creator of this universe, our God knows something. He says, you can't serve both God and money. Why does he say that? Because Jesus knows that money is the chief competitor with God for our hearts. Paul continues. 
but you, Timothy, are a man of God. Sort of saying, there's good news, okay? It, it doesn't have to be this way. I know I've brought you down to here, Timothy. Let me now bring, let me build you back up. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from all these evil things. When it comes to discontentment, when it comes to bigger is better, when it comes to I got to have more, he doesn't say, hey, be careful. Watch yourself. He says, run, Timothy, run. And instead, pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith and love and perseverance and gentleness. And this word pursue is key because what he's saying to Timothy, what he's saying to the original audience, what he's saying to every single one of us is this. I need you. I want you to change the direction of your life from pursuing more to pursuing God and pursuing other people. And then he issues almost a challenge. He says, what if? What if? Imagine. Imagine if you redirected all of the time that you spent being dissatisfied with what you wear, what you drive, where you live, how you vacation. What if you redirected all of that time into areas of your life with actual value? Imagine that. And then he gives us just a couple of quick examples as to how to do this. And he's telling Timothy, here's how you're going to educate your people. He says they should be rich in good works. Paul's like, remember, this life's not about you. We talked about that in this series. Life's not about you. You need to be getting out there and you need to be giving back through volunteering. And that could be any number of ways. That could be here at DHC. It could be at your kid's school. It could, could be in Little League. It could be anywhere. But Paul is like, you need to be giving back. You need to be actively getting involved in the community that you live in. He continues. He says, and be generous to those in need. This is a challenge. See, what we believe here at this church is that everything that we have from our health to our wealth has been given to us by God. And Paul would say, the money that you've earned, that God gave you, that has been given to you to use for your enjoyment. That has been used for you to, to feed your families. But are you doing anything of value with what God has given you for the kingdom of God, to help other people, to help those in need. Then lastly, he said, always being ready to share with others. So, confession time. Um, I'm not good at sharing. Um, I'm generous. I know you're not supposed to say that, okay? But like, that, that's not a problem for me. But like, sharing's an issue. And I don't know if it's because I'm an only child, but this week I was, I was like, over Thanksgiving, I was thinking about why is sharing for me such a problem? And I think, I think the answer is that I just don't trust you with my stuff, okay? I'm gonna break my stuff. And my wife, and she hates when I talk about her, and I said, I'm gonna talk about you again. And she goes, This is it. You're done for like the Christmas season, maybe. Every once in a while, she will ask to borrow my SUV because she needs to go pick up something. Or it's very infrequently, but she's like, John, can I, can, I borrow, can I borrow your truck? Now, I don't drive a Ferrari. just a regular SUV, but I'm a car guy, all right? I'm the guy at Publix who parks 14 miles away because I don't want y'all dinging my door, all right? I've seen what goes on with the people who park close to Publix. Nobody's paying attention. Doors flying everywhere, okay? Not me. I might as well walk to the supermarket, okay? But she says, okay, John, can I borrow your truck? I need it. I got to go pick something up. And I dig down deep and I say, yeah, 
not a problem. You can, you can borrow my truck. Well, there's always a caveat. I say, mm, just don't hit anything, okay? Just don't hit anything. And of course, this is always well-received when I say this, and I can't help myself. She, always it's like this. Thank you, John, very much. I don't know where we'd be with your wisdom in life because had you not told me to not hit anything, I would have just slammed into the cars all around me. I mean, thank God. How do we live in this world without just, I am so grateful you told me not to hit anything because I was about to blast the neighbor's car. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, can't help myself though, okay? I'll continue to say it. Just please don't hit anything. Okay, here... Paul wraps up this conversation about ways that we can begin to get outside of our own world and, and begin plugging into those around us. And he wraps it up by saying this. By doing this, they, that's us, will be storing up their treasures as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. What Paul is saying here is that if we just go with the flow of culture, we are going to grab on to something that America has told us is true life. It's not true life. Paul is having a conversation with a young pastor 2,000 years ago, and he's saying, if we can just help people, even at an early stage, begin to shift their focus away from the acquisition of more, they might find that they are content with less. If we can begin to help people understand that the more of ourselves that we give away to others, the happier we will be. Paul never says that the money is the root of all evil. Paul has no problem with money. Paul has no problem with stuff, right? Nice stuff, not a problem. Paul is saying, however, if that stuff becomes a driving force in your life, it will lead to incalculable limitless, negative effects. So steer clear. Run, Timothy. What's practical? What do you do with a message like this? First time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen. We want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So let me just say this. These types of messages are not easy to hear and they're not easy to give because we get our toes stepped on. But every once in a while, we need to get our toes stepped on. So my first practical is this one. Don't give yourself an out. It is very easy to hear a message like this and say, well, that's not me. You hear an example I gave, you hear Paul say something, and we're quick to give a defense. Yeah, but John, here's the deal. Yeah, but here's what you don't understand. I understand this, but let me just explain to you why this is. Here's the truth. All of this is between you and God. Just between you and God. God gives us his advice for a specific reason. He wants to make your life better, and he wants to make you better at life. You can ignore it if you want. Paul doesn't give us this advice to make us feel bad. He gives us this advice to benefit us and to benefit those around us. To do that, your second practical, I would challenge you, Channel your discontent for good. Paul gives any number of ways that you can channel your energy of dissatisfaction, let's call it, into things that truly have value. So will you be willing to give to those in need? 
Would you be willing to give of your time to volunteer to some, for someone else? Would you be willing to recognize the idea that everything that we have as Christians has been given to us on loan from God, from our health to our wealth? And since it's been given to us on loan from God, would you be willing to share it with others? To show them how much you love them. And by showing them love, you are necessarily showing God that you love him. I would challenge you this week on something that I myself am going to do. And if you're looking for a real-world, practical first step to begin to combat this discontent we may feel, I would challenge you this week to begin to ask the question, does it spark joy? Put joy in green. It's kind of Christmas now, okay? Does it spark joy? Scott Sonnenberg, as I talked about him, collects clothing for the homeless. And he and I were talking this week. And he said, John, I got to be honest with you. We're out of clothes. And the weather is getting cold. Tomorrow it's going to be 43 degrees. So I would challenge you, if you're up for it, if you feel like it, to go into your closet, look at everything that you have, everything that you've told yourself I need, and begin to ask the question, does this spark joy? And if it does, keep it. And if it doesn't, would you consider bringing it next Sunday, the Sunday after that, in a garbage bag? Would you be willing to take the excess that you may have as an American and use that to help somebody in this city. Homelessness is a massive problem in this city. And whatever your thoughts are, that's fine. But remember, these are humans out there. And they're going to be cold. And we can help. So as you begin to think about that, as you begin to meditate on what Paul said 2,000 years ago, remember, don't let your desire for more rob you of what's truly valuable. This is an ambitious church. That's a good thing. This is a church filled with people who are driven to succeed. That's a good thing. Just don't let God and others take a back seat in that endeavor. In this documentary, um, Generation Wealth, there's a man who figures prominently, multi-billion dollar hedge fund president, apparently on the run from the FBI. He's in Europe. And he tells this story. He says, years ago, I was sitting on a gorgeous harbor in the Mediterranean with my wife. We were eating lunch. Out in front of us were mega yachts like we have here in Fort Lauderdale. And as he tells the story, he goes, there was a $30 million yacht. There was a $40 million yacht. There was a $50 million yacht. And I went to my wife. I said, honey, whatever one you want, you point to it, it's yours. And she looks at him and says, the only thing that I want it's for you to put your cell phone down. And then this guy just chokes up and he looks in the camera and he goes, what you've been sold is a bag of rotten goods. And sometimes it takes a really long journey to see what truly matters. And I just hope for us at DHC, we can begin to see what truly matters in our lives those around us in that relationship with God.
Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. Lord, hearing about money and possessions and discontentment is never an easy topic, but I am thankful that you sent your son into this world to die for our sins. And what's so amazing, Lord, is that Jesus, more than anything else, spoke about money. And it wasn't about giving it back to the local church. It was warning us of the dangers that it could have in our life if left unchecked. And I just pray, Lord, that every single one of us, because we're Americans, Lord, every single one of us, at whatever level we struggle with dissatisfaction and discontentment, God, that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would convict us, would challenge us to channel those feelings into doing good, into things in our life that actually have value, so that when we leave this world and we leave everything behind, that we can leave a legacy of, of the good that we've been able to do, of the friends that we've been able to impact, of the ability and the blessings that we've had a chance to be part of when we build your kingdom on this earth. Thank you, God, for everything that you've given us, large or small, for our health, for our family, for our friends, we thank you. In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen.